You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord Jesus, we are gathered in your presence to worship you. We thank you that we can sing praises to you, that we can confess our sins and we can adore you. We ask now in these moments in your word that by your Holy Spirit you would speak to us through the glory of the Father. Amen. Well, grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the things that I've noticed in these uh, months uh, since March, how much uh, a person who spends time in the Word of God, who seeks to offer spiritual direction and to proclaim the gospel, needs people. That exegeting the text alone without being involved with individuals, with brothers and sisters in Christ and with seekers, it's just very difficult to do the work. Uh, I think this is the longest period of time that I have spent uh, without preaching regularly since about 1980. Uh, So this has been an unusual time for me. Uh, I did preach last uh, weekend in another place, and uh, I was afraid that I might be really rusty after all this time but it actually worked out fine. Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 13. And in this chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, it's all parables. Matthew grouped his material together into uh, one sort of composite picture of Jesus' parabolic teaching ministry. And it's the parable of the weeds and the wheat. Uh, A simple story And yet, I think it has a profound significance as Jesus explained it. I came upon the thought that Jesus turned to parables after spending four consecutive Wednesday nights working on the Sermon on the Mount in a church about an hour from here, an hour from Birmingham, and it took me about an hour drive there and an hour drive home and about a 30-minute session with the Sermon on the Mount. And each week, I got progressively worse. And the people seemed increasingly bored. And it seemed like I was hitting the wall in trying to teach the Sermon on the Mount. And literally, as I was walking away on the fourth Wednesday night, really frustrated, because I wanted to be a lot more effective, and I wanted their response to be in a sense, uh, more effective. And I muttered to myself, this is why Jesus told stories. And then it hit me that there was a reason why Jesus moved from the more propositional teaching to teaching in parables. And it's really, there's a, a number of reasons. One, the Pharisees were growing more severe in their opposition And they were always in the crowd. They were always on the edges of the crowd being as critical and as judgmental as they could be because they felt it was their duty to put down this nonconformist Galilean rabbi. And so there was that sense in which the opposition is building and they're already strategizing to kill Jesus. And then the crowd, if he wanted to stay in communication with the crowd given this opposition, 
He's going to have to find another way, Jesus is, to speak. And you realize how subversive this friendly communication truly is. Telling these simple stories, which on one level could be entertaining to the crowd, talking about seed and farming and uh, lost sons. I mean, there's a way in which everybody's going to connect somewhere with this story. But then there's a third group. There's the Pharisees, there's the crowd, and then there's the disciples. And Jesus actually is inviting the disciples to hear the story and then to ask questions, to seek an explanation. So the underlying truth in these parables is, do you really hear Jesus? Are your eyes and mind and ears open to hearing the gospel and his kingdom strategy. And this is why Matthew refers to Isaiah 6. You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Interesting that Jesus would use the prophet Isaiah to help explain the reticence on the part of people to respond, to truly hear this revelation that is coming about because God has sent his Messiah. Ray Binkley was a friend. He's now with the Lord and I'm sure he wouldn't mind me sharing this story. He was a Shell Oil executive in Toronto. It was during our Toronto days, um, and we got to know them. We both went to the same church. And Ray would say that the Bible was absolutely useless in his business career. He was a hard-nosed corporate executive, very successful, and his church life was on one side, and... Uh, his real world was on the other side. And that was reflected in his family. It was reflected in those people that he associated with. It was reflected in his income and how he used his income. And then Ray was involved in a serious car accident. Almost died, weeks in the hospital. And it led him to a new evaluation of what his life was all about. And he came to the conclusion that if he was going to call himself a Christian, he really needed to take the Bible seriously. And that opened up a whole new chapter. You might think of it almost as a second conversion for Ray. Before, he used to boast of selling product in the Shell company to people who didn't need it, but they were sold by his pitch. And he was very good at it. Now he changed and refused to sell more than what people actually needed. The people that he just ignored in the corporation because they weren't important, he now began to consider and and to really show appreciation for. Changed his dynamic with the family. One of the high points of my ministry life was actually doing a course with Ray entitled Christians in Business. 
in the seminary that I was in there, and 20 seminary students, but 44 Toronto business people attended that course. His eyes were open, his ears were hearing, and he was beginning to understand, but boy, it was a painful process. Jesus tells a very simple story. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and they went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. Now these weeds are darnel, which is a weed that looks a lot like wheat at various stages of the growth process. They're also toxic. Uh, in, in little form, it can be uh, intoxicating, but in intense form, it can be deadly. These weeds are growing up with the wheat, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you, sow, you, we, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have so many weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do... Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow up together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, gather the wheat into my barns. Would you have questions if you were in the audience that day listening to Jesus tell this story? You might think that the story was about a good farmer with bad neighbors. You might think that the story was, in a sense, encouraging more self-control on the part of the farmer. You might feel like, well, this justifies a kind of laissez-faire attitude. We'll do it the right way, but then not worry about it. And I think a lot of people would be satisfied with that. Kind of a nice, moralistic, uh, business-type tale. Jackson Brown has written a book entitled uh, Life's Little Instruction Book. He wrote it for his son, who was going off to college, and it has 500 one-liners in this little book. Uh, like it never hurts to uh, overtip the breakfast waitress, or uh, always give people a firm handshake, or uh, smile, it's not going to hurt you, that type of thing. I think some people, they, they, that's where they're, they're at. <laughs> they want it simple. Just a kind of easy thought for the moment. But man, is that going to satisfy you? I hear Christians say to me, I just want a simple faith. And they have no idea how angry I am inside when I hear that. Life isn't that simple. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, I I won't give a fig for simplicity on this side of complexity, but I'll give my life for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. The gospel is fundamentally simple, 
This is why Paul said, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But then if you read through the book of Corinthians, Paul plants that cross in every issue of life facing these Corinthian believers. I'm drawing out the fact that we can let Jesus' story be a story, a nice story, about good farmers, bad neighbors, and self-control. Or we can do what the disciples did. And they asked. And in the 36th verse, then Jesus left the crowds, went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Now, I really like that word, explain. I'm out of work if people don't want explanations. To explain is so fundamentally important, and the disciples know that there's something behind this when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. They know that there's something more behind all of this. And so Jesus answers, and here's his explanation of the parable. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And they don't have to ask, who's that? They know that's Jesus. Because he's already said the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He's already found that as a favorite expression that identifies himself. The field is the world. And the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. Here's this simple on the face of it, story that can be interpreted moralistically or entertainingly, but here Jesus has found himself as the good sower of the seed of the gospel. And he finds in the opposition the force of the devil. Now notice how wrong it would be if we interpreted this parable as if Uh, the servants aren't doing their job by guarding the land. (laughs) It has nothing to do with what Jesus means by this parable. There's no deficiency on the part of the servants. He wasn't supposed to build a wall around the farm. Uh, It's Jesus' interpretation here is this evil is not sourced in anything you can control. It's sourced in the devil. And I'm in control, the Son of Man says. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For anyone who doesn't feel that Jesus believed in the devil, nor uh, nor that he would not uh, argue for and speak of hell, this passage speaks of both the devil and the hell, and that there is a consequence for judgment, for refusal of accepting the gospel, for not abiding by the will of God, 
and that there will be a reckoning. Evil will meet its match eventually. That in the providence of God, this will be the outcome of history. Leslie Newbegin is an Anglican uh, missionary and uh, bishop, and he makes this wise point in the light of this parable. Wherever the gospel's preached, wherever the seed is sown, new ideologies appear. Secular humanism, nationalism, Marxism, and we could add American exceptionalism, movements which offer the vision of a new age, an age freed from all the ills that beset human life, freed from hunger and disease and war. Once the gospel is preached and there is a community which lives by the gospel, then the question of the ultimate meaning of history is posed and other messiahs appear. So the crisis of history deepens. I believe that's what Jesus is explaining to the disciples. The crisis of history deepens because the, so, the seed of the gospel has been sown. So what shall we do? Well, I do think that this parable is given to the disciples so that they relax. I've called it uh, in the past willed passivity. Evil is evil. The world is the world. Don't become too distracted by the evil, by the negative. The job now is to sow the good seed of the gospel. That's our job. That's our wonderful responsibility. And yes, the devil works to undermine that work, but God is in control. The Son of Man will bring judgment. He will deal with evil. So there's a way in which, uh, I, uh, to be personal on this, at times as a pastor, I've wondered if I've let things slide that should have been dealt with. And this parable comes to somewhat reassure me so as not to turn me, myself, into a Pharisee. And yet, on the other hand, we don't want to say that this is an excuse for not dealing with justice issues, for not recognizing injustice, and for responding to that. That's why I think the Apostle Paul said, may your love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so you discern what's best. That's a discernment process that's ongoing. But I think this parable gives us some space. Space to remain positive for the world, in the world, but not of the world. Where we don't have to belabor the evil of the world when we have so much goodness in the gospel to proclaim and to live. Well, I told you about Ray Binkley. This will be my last story here. Uh, Laura Binkley, his daughter, came to the seminary as a regular Master of Divinity student. And she became a TA along with several others in a large systematic theology class I taught. Laura was just an outstanding disciple of Christ. 
a person that I learned from, and I enjoyed her uh, and the mix that she created uh, in the classroom setting. Well, she graduated and, uh, from Toronto and went to uh, serve in an orphanage in Moscow. She wasn't there for more than three months before one night she was stabbed to death. Ray Binkley's daughter, dying in Moscow, a friend that she had uh, made and shared Christ with, but she didn't realize that she was a plant for a gang. One night, this girl knocked on Laura's door, and Laura, of course, opened the door. She recognized her, and behind her were three men who killed Laura. Evil works its horrible price. I'd have to tell you, this didn't stop Ray from being passionately committed to Jesus Christ. And that family really was marked by the cross of Christ in a profound way. And yet, they were resilient in the midst of all of that. So the question is, do we have ears to hear what Jesus has to say? Are we willing to follow up and ask, explain to us what this means? And then are we able to accept his big picture? Concentrate on the gospel. Focus on that which is good. Do not be overwhelmed by the evil, but overcome the evil with good. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray together. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.